And um, to get us started, I wonder how many of you can relate to this image up on the screen. You have uh, kind of gotten excited about a, a little project. Uh, maybe it's baking or cooking, and uh, you got the ingredients together, and uh, you researched, you were like, this is it. I am going to bake a cake, I'm going to cook something, and uh, that is what the finished product looked like. How many of you can relate to uh, going along with this? I did a, a, an online baking course uh, a few years ago, and then attempted to bake a cake at the end of the course, and uh, the cake I tried to do was a four-tier chocolate cake, and uh, all four tiers combined, the cake was about so high, and I have yet to get a cake to rise. Um, I'm just not, not good at baking. But how many of us can identify? It might not be baking, it might not be in the kitchen, but we've had this expectation about an experience, about something, but reality was just so different. Hey, maybe it was traveling just a couple of years ago, Inez and I were in uh, Turkey, and we wanted to get to the spot in Istanbul called the Hagia Sophia, an iconic uh, religious landmark. And we were so excited to go and see it. In fact, we uh, planned a large part of our trip to get there on a very specific day. And we got there early. And, and what a disaster. We could not get a picture without scaffolding and people in it. Kind of walking away from that going, well, that, that was nice, but uh, not anywhere near what we were hoping. But maybe it's a, a whole different thing for you. Maybe it's uh, where you're at in your career. You had these expectations. You're going to take on the world with your career, but reality is just so different to what you were dreaming would happen. In fact, reality is so far from what you were dreaming about your life. Maybe it's relationships. By now, the expectation was you'd be married, but that hasn't materialized yet. Or maybe you thought marriage would be something, but reality is that your experience of it has been completely different. In fact, maybe you're in this space where you're going, sure, if I could go back in time and kind of change how things have panned out, I would. Because right now where I'm sitting, if I think of my life, what I was expecting has not even come close to reality. That what I was dreaming about, what I was hoping for, what I was trusting for, just hasn't materialized. In fact, I'm so far from that. Maybe that's how you're experiencing your faith. You know, if you think about, uh, for those of us who have made a decision to follow Jesus with our lives, the joy we experienced at coming to faith in him and realizing what he did for us and the fervor that we started out with. But as the, kind of the, the years have gone on, what we were experiencing in our faith doesn't kind of match up to what we were hoping for. Maybe you started out this year. This is the year that I'm going to enjoy the fullness of God. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to spend time praying. I'm going to seek Him. I'm going to trust Him. But you've kind of just never kicked into gear and you finding yourself frustrated and disappointed. And in fact, most of your experience is kind of guilt and shame and, and, and just you're operating out of this place of kind of failed expectations in your life. I heard this about 2018, um, and, and uh, maybe you've heard this, because uh, 2018 has kind of not lived up to its expectations, and, and a lot of us are feeling kind of the pressure of what this year has been, and, and everything we trusted and hoped for, just even in this year, uh, the reality has been very different. 
And it kind of goes like this. There's light at the end of the tunnel, except it was an oncoming train. And, and, and that just defines so much of our experience. If you can identify with that in any way, then I, I think you're in the right place and trusting that God is gonna do something in your life with this. And so why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of Judges. It is in the Old Testament, uh, relatively near the beginning, obscure book. You might not have uh, heard about it or read much in there. If you've got a paperback, uh, put a bookmark in there uh, because we're going to be spending a little bit of time there. This is where we're going to be reading for the next few weeks. And while you're finding it, don't uh, feel bad to kind of search for it or look in the, the contents page. Most people don't kind of hang out here and read it much. It is a little bit weird. Uh, we are going to read some weird things and you're going to go, is that in the Bible? Uh, yes. Uh, just to catch you up to uh, the big picture, uh, how things in the world have kind of landed up where they are here and uh, just to kind of just shoot through salvation history very quickly, is there's God, and uh, he uh, has a conversation with one particular guy called Abraham. And uh, that happens in, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. He says, I'm gonna make uh, a promise with you. We call that a covenant, and I'm gonna explain that more at the end, so don't worry uh, about that right now. And he calls Abraham to follow him. And Abraham does. He kind of leaves everything. He leaves his family and he decides to trust God and go where God calls him to. And God takes him into uh, what is now modern day uh, Israel, Palestine, that whole area. Uh, the Bible calls it the promised land. That was the land that God was going to give to his people to set up as a nation. Abraham goes on to uh, the nation of Israel is now a big nation, but they are in slavery in Egypt, uh, very far from being in the promised land. But then another guy you might have heard of called Moses. Uh, God uses a man called Moses to take the whole nation of Israel out of slavery into the promised land. On the way, they don't trust God. That generation uh, dies and spends 40 years in the desert just kind of wandering around. Uh, before they're able to enter into the promised land under a new leader called Joshua. Once they're in, they start a number of military campaigns and they start to uh, take the promised land that God had given them as an inheritance. And so we pick up the book of Judges. Judges deals with uh, the nation of Israel, God's people, in kind of the midst of uh, the conquering of the promised land. And uh, very interesting. Now just guys, we're gonna go and to help us build context for tonight. So I'm gonna read bits from chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three. So follow with me. There are some uh, big names, some weird names. Uh, just track with me if you're going like, what the heck is this like reading? There is a point to it all because these are real people, real places that God uh, has a lot to teach us about it. So chapter one, verse one, that's where I'm about to start reading. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We will 
uh, we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the uh, Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him. Adonai Bezek just means king of the Bezek. And uh, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Yes, again, that is in the Bible. Then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes have uh, picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. So it's really interesting to note that this guy who has just been captured had his thumbs and big toes cut off, doesn't even seem to be upset about what has happened, just really acknowledging the judgment that has come on him from the Lord. All right, again, bit of context. They are still in the process of uh, defeating the enemies that were there, and uh, they are continuing with that after the death of Joshua. Jump down to chapter 2 and verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each of their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim near the Mount of Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. They arose the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baals and Ashtaroth. Those are the gods of uh, the Canaanites and, and the people around them that they did not uh, fully defeat. In his, anger, the, uh, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Now, if you want to jump to chapter 3, because this is now kind of the cycle that happens throughout the whole of the book of Judges. They disobey the Lord. He uses the nations around them to come against them, to oppress them, and to cause them distress. They then cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a judge someone whose spirit is, uh, his spirit is upon them, who then sets them free from their oppression and leads them into a time of peace. That person, that judge then dies and the Israelites then fall back into uh, this pattern of sin, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, worshiping other gods. Then God's anger coming against them, them coming under oppression, under oppression, them crying out to God in distress, who then raises up another judge. And the cycle just continues and continues and continues. And so here we see in chapter three, the first of that cycle. So chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any wars in Canaan. 
He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of Israel who had not had any previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidians, the Hevites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebohamath, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. Again, there's a cycle. They were given choices all the time, obey or not obey, and most often they chose not to obey, and we'll see that. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Pezurites, Hivites, uh, Jebusites, and they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so he sold them into their hands. Of Cushan, Rishathim, the king of Aram, Nahariam, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. Here is the first judge. The spirit of the Lord came on him, so he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave uh, Cushan, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. And so the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died, dot, dot, dot. And the next paragraph basically goes on, and then Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the cycle continued and continued and continued. If for a whole nation who had experienced so much, uh, they were expecting so much when it came to the inheritance of the promised land. If you think back and if you know any of the story, when they went and scouted out the land before they went and entered it, the report came back as this is a land flowing of milk and honey. They brought back examples and samples of produce, bunches of grapes so big and heavy that two people had to carry it over a pole. There was so much expectation about now really being this nation, having their own land and and, and being God's light to the nations. What they're experiencing now in the book of Judges is so far from that expectation. What was promised, what was hoped for, what was, they were trusting for, and what they're currently experiencing here in the book of Judges, expectation is so far, or reality is so far from expectations. Again, we're gonna see so much of this mood in our own lives. We can all identify that where we're at in our lives right now is not what we were really hoping for. And there's so many failed disappointments uh, along the way and failed hopes, failed dreams. But when you look at their lives and you look at the situation that they're in, the primary reason that they're in the place that they're in as a nation is because of their own spiritual inconsistency. And we realize that for us as well, that most of the, uh, the problems and struggles that we are dealing with in our own lives is largely because of our own spiritual inconsistencies. And so if you're taking notes and you wanna write something down for tonight, here's one of the first major learnings that we kind of see in the opening chapters of Judges. And it's this, small areas of unbelief can produce huge areas of disaster. Small areas of unbelief can produce huge areas of disaster. When it came to what they had to do as a nation, the command of the Lord was go in and destroy all of the inhabitants in the the land. Go in and destroy them. They had gotten so far and they had seen incredible victories. The Lord was before them every step of the way. 
But once those leaders, Joshua and the elders who had lived him, this next generation, they chose not to obey God. They lived in unbelief. And because of that unbelief and not completing the task that the Lord had set before them, that bit of unbelief resulted in years and years and years of pain and suffering and hardship because they did not obey the Lord. Here's how this kind of plays out in our own lives. If you think of uh, integrity, right? So maybe it was a business deal. You uh, kind of chose to make a decision to that was kind of gray, uh, maybe not so, so legal, try and get a bit more bucks, or you did something in your company to try and promote yourself. And, and, and you can kind of just apply it to whatever it was for you. You know uh, in your own heart the, how this is relevant to you. But you chose not to act with integrity, and you didn't think it was such a big deal, but it came back to cause huge disaster in your life. You can think uh, about it, uh, the series that we've been doing with extending forgiveness. How a small act of God saying forgive, but you choosing not to forgive, results in how many more extra years of pain and hardship in your own life by not being faithful to the Lord and trusting Him uh, with the, the situation that was before you. How many marriages uh, relationships have uh, completely exploded because uh, we chose not to avoid sexual temptation. Going, I, I can control this. Uh, I, I've got, got a handle on this. It's not that big of a problem. Ended up becoming a major disaster in your life. How a small area of unfaithfulness or, or a small area of unbelief can lead to a huge disaster in your life. Being in a relationship with someone who you shouldn't be. Instead of trusting God with your singleness uh, and, and rather just kind of selling out uh, because you're lonely. And I know that might sound hard, but an area of not trusting can become a huge area of disaster. See, the Israelites used language like this, God, I can't. But what God understands is, no, you won't. Because so often we use the words, but God, I can't do this. God, this is too hard. And in the Israelites' case, when they came up to fighting against the Canaanites specifically, the Canaanites had this uh, bit of military tech called chariots. And the Israelites didn't have that. And so they were quite scared of the superior uh, technology that the Canaanites had. So they thought they were going to get destroyed if they went up against them. And so they chose to disobey the Lord and go, we can't fight them. They've got better tech. But the Lord had defeated the enemies every single time the Israelites went into battle. If you think of uh, earlier when they first went in, they came across and came up against the most fortified city in the known world, Jericho. And they didn't even raise a finger. God destroyed the walls and, and he just uh, smashes down any um, a bit of uh, military power that came against his people. All they had to do was obey and trust the Lord. And this generation chose not to. They said, God, we can't. But actually, that was unbelief. And what it really is expressing is, God, we won't. And that bit of unbelief caused huge pain for them. And that is true for us as well because where we are saying, God, I can't deal with the sin or God, I can't overcome this. It's just gonna have to be a part of my life. Or God, I won't, or God, I can't forgive that person. God, I can't 
It's actually we won't because what we're doing is living with unbelief. And when we don't deal with these things, where we think it's not a big thing, it's a minor thing, I can control it, I'm on top of this, I'll get to it, I'll manage it, it ends up plaguing and then enslaving. It ends up plaguing and then enslaving. And we find where we thought we had a handle on something in our lives, it has got a firm grip on our hearts. And that has actually replaced the Lord in terms of who we worship. And we've put other gods in place as did the people of Israel because they then worshiped all the gods of the people around them. What happened is uh, they chose not to fight the Canaanites. They retreated, they left them, they waited. They became more numerous than the Canaanites and what they ended up doing was actually turning the Canaanites into forced labor. And so when they then were able to destroy them, they thought, we can actually get um, some benefit out of it here. And they put them into forced labor. See, trying to kind of control it. Look, we've actually got a handle on the situation. We know better than what's going on. And instead of, again, trusting the Lord, it became a plague and it enslaved them. And again, not obeying, uh, living with unbelief, it ended up becoming a huge, huge issue for them. And so here's what happens. They don't trust God. They live with unbelief. And then God has to deal with their sin. And people often battle with this kind of uh, seemingly big contradiction that's happening in the book of Judges. But God gave them the promised land. You know, he said, I'm going to give this land to you. I'm, I'm your God. I'm going to set you up. But now his hand's against them and he's punishing them for their sin. Kind of what's going on here? What is God doing, and we need to understand something about the nature and character of God that we're going to see played out in the book of Judges uh, almost through every single chapter. And here it is, God is a jealous God. Now what happens is uh, when we hear the word jealousy or we see the traits of jealousy in someone, we automatically go, that's a bad thing. But I think there is a positive or almost righteous jealousy some of you in this room have children, and so you can maybe identify, and if you don't, just track with me on this. I want the best for my children. I want them to grow up to be fantastic human beings. I want them to love what is right. I want them to love Jesus. I want them to love people. I want them to hate what is evil. There's a lot in my heart that I'm trusting and wanting and, and hoping and, and fighting for my children. And so I'm jealous over them. I don't just allow anybody into their lives and I don't allow them kind of free reign on what they wanna watch and, and do. I'm jealous over guarding the, how I'm trying to raise them. I have a jealousy over them. And that's not a bad jealousy. Same with my wife. I love the fact that she loves only me. And, and, and there's something about that that I'm hers and she's mine that I love, it's not an obsession, but there's this, there's this wonderful jealousy that I, I just, I protect our marriage and we fight for our marriage because there's something so special about that it's each other that we love only. And it's the same thing with the Lord. He has his people, he loves them and he wants them to love him and worship him only. And so when they go and worship these other gods, there's this real sense of betrayal but I've, I've chosen you, you are my people. 
I'm the one true God. Remember the deeds that I did for you, how you've experienced me. And you're going to worship those detestable, false gods of these other nations that you are supposed to drive out. There's a real anger in the betrayal that the Lord feels towards his people. But then there's another emotion that he feels. And again, if you have children, you'll get this. My children, as special as they are, don't always listen to me. That's right, I am not this uh, perfect parent. Uh, my children don't listen to me. And uh, I have a three-nager. And uh, uh, do you know what the difference is between a terrorist and a three-nager? A three-nager, if you're a little bit confused, is a three-year-old. Uh, you get the terrible twos and then you get a three-nager. And uh, you know what the difference is between a terrorist and a, and a three-nager is? You can negotiate with a terrorist. So uh, Edith, my, <laughs> my special child, uh, was running outside with a pen in her hand. And um, I was telling her the whole time, Edith, put the pen down. You're going to hurt yourself, Edith. Put the pen down, put the pen down, put the pen down. Now, again, if you're wondering, Craig, why didn't you just get up and take the pen out of her hand? Uh, you obviously have never tried to take something from a three-year-old before, okay? And so you just, and if you have, you know what the consequences are of taking something out of the hand of a three-year-old. So uh, just in a, a moment of bad parenting, I just kept on telling her, just don't run with the pen in your hand. And guess what happened? She tripped and stabbed herself just on the side of her nose with the pen, and the tip of the pen went right in, and there was blood, and she was screaming in pain. It was a very painful experience for her. So you know what I did? Is while she was lying on the floor crying with blood kind of spewing out her face, I went, see what happens when you don't listen to me. And I hope this serves you right. No. Even though she did not listen to my words, when I told her what was best for her, I scooped her up as fast as I could, squeezing her in my arms, running inside, taking care of her. And, and parents, you'll know this because she was crying. She was in a lot of pain. And, and what was happening in my heart was not, I was not angry at her. My heart was breaking because of the pain that she was in. And I was working as fast as I can to alleviate her of her pain. Even though she was completely disobedient, as her loving father, I was trying to take away her pain. And this is what we're going to see, and this is what happens in the book of Judges. They cried out to the Lord in their distress. And so God sent a judge to set them free. And here we see the character of God. He's angry at the betrayal of them worshiping false gods. Yet in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, he has pity on them, and he sees them in their distress, and he can't take it. He can't handle that his people are being oppressed. Even though he has uh, caused it in trying to discipline his people, he sets them free from it. He sends someone who is going to rid them of that oppression. He sends someone who is going to uh, bring peace and restore them to where they should be. The first one is Othniel. But we see something else with the, the book of Judges. Is it's incomplete. God's people are broken. They keep going to worship false gods. They keep moving from belief to unbelief. Even when they remember the Lord, they cry out, He saves them. You would think they would learn from that. You would think we would learn from that. But instead, they go back to unbelief. They go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. 
They've just experienced him setting them free. And they go back. But what we're also going to see is that the judges themselves often struggle with the same thing that uh, the people suffer from. And every single time a judge comes and saves his people, it's incomplete. They keep falling back into sin and paying the price for their sin. God brings judgment and oppression to his people. The judge comes, sets them free, they obey, they fall back into unbelief, they worship false gods, they do evil, and, and this just cycle just continues and continues and continues. And every judge is just this incomplete savior for God's people. It's incomplete, it's incomplete. And that's, again, it's just so true for our lives because we trust incomplete saviors. We think if I just work hard or pursue money, that's the solution to my problems. And we find that that's just this broken kind of savior, this broken thing that's just, we think it's a relationship that's gonna fix us and that doesn't work out. And we think, and all of these things, if I have more possessions, a bigger house, all of these things are just incomplete and they don't save us. And we just fall back into these traps of unbelief and, and, and not experiencing all that we hope for and trusted for with God. Same as his people. And that leads on to the second thing in the book of Judges and for tonight. And if you want to write this down, a major truth. Because before God's people is this the whole time. Choose between the God who saves and between gods that enslave. Choose between the God who saves and between gods that enslave. Because if you've read the book of Judges, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, the book is incomplete. Because there is a judge that is not mentioned in the book that comes later. Every judge that God sends in the book of Judges is incomplete. Broken themselves does not finish the job of dealing with the sin of Israel. Except for the one that God sends last. The final judge who sets God's people free from their captivity but also pays the price for the sin himself. Every judge is incomplete. They go back into their sin. But when Jesus comes, he sets us free. But he himself pays the price for our sin. You see, we are broken people. We experience the power of God in our lives, but we somehow just keep on going back into unbelief, back into unbelief, back into unbelief, and not experiencing the fullness that God has for us. Yet God is faithful to us every single time. And the reason God is so faithful to his people as we're gonna see over the next few weeks is because of that guy I mentioned earlier, Abraham. Something very important that happens between God and Abraham. In Christianity, we use this word covenant. It's an important word. God made a covenant with Abraham that went on to his people. That is why he never forgets the Israelites. That's why he comes through, no matter how badly they sin, no matter how badly they turn their back on him, he still is faithful every single day and is why he is faithful to us every single day. So how he makes this covenant with Abraham and how they did it in those days is a little bit gross, but they would take a bull, they would saw the bull in half. They would kind of part it and there would be a bloody mess on the ground. The people making the covenant, one would stand on one side of the bull, one would stand on the other. And they would walk and when they would get into the middle where all of this stuff would be, that's where they would make the agreements. 
When they would be on the other side, they'd come out and there'd be kind of blood splatter everywhere, a little bit gross, but very, very important because a covenantal agreement says this, if I fail you in this agreement, you are allowed to do this to me. My blood will be spilled in payment for failing this covenant agreement. And the other person says, yes, if I fail you in this covenant agreement, my blood will be spilled because of that. That was the significance of a covenant agreement. So when God calls Abraham to follow him, he says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you because of your faith. I will be your God. We are gonna make a covenant together. And so there's this dead bull, they parted, there's all of this stuff. Abraham's there, God's on this side. And as they're about to kind of make the agreement, God puts Abraham to sleep. And Abraham wakes up and he goes, what's happened? And God has walked through on his behalf and he's walked through on Abraham's behalf. And what that means and what God is saying is when I fail you, or rather if I fail you in this covenant, my blood will be spilt. And when you fail me in this covenant, my blood will be spilt. And that's huge for us. And that's the difference with Jesus. And that is what Jesus did. It was God keeping his covenant and his faithfulness to his people. Because they kept on failing and they kept on failing and they needed to be punished for their sin because God has to deal with the issue of sin and the final judge, Jesus. God's faithfulness is proven. Where his blood is spilt because of our faithlessness. Where we fail and in our brokenness, God spills his blood to deal with that. And again, we need to make the decision to choose between the God that saves and between God's that enslave. Because what we have is this God who has done everything for us to secure us being in relationship with him. Yet we continue not to worship him and him alone, but to fall into unbelief and worship things that enslave us that don't ever match up to who he is. And maybe the problems in our own life is because we choose that instead of this God who saves. This God who wants this relationship with us. Maybe you're finding yourself in a position where you realize that and you're needing to repent. And you need to say, God, I have been following these false gods for too long now. I I thought I had this under control, but these things have now completely enslaved me God, set me free from this. I repent and I want to worship you and you alone. And I want to encourage us to do that tonight. And this is where we're at with judges and this is where we're going to kind of respond to the Lord tonight. So why don't you kind of bow your heads as uh, we pray. And I want you to think, God, where in my life have I got issues of unbelief? Where am I trusting you, but where am I not? What parts of my life have I not surrendered to you? Where I'm still trying to do things in my own strength that I think I have under control, but I'm not trusting you. And if you need to do some time repenting, do that. And in that, say, God, I am going to trust you. I choose you, my God who saves I'm gonna check out all these false gods that enslave.
You might think it's a small thing, but it can end up being a huge area of disaster in your life. And this is what God is calling us to. We're broken people. Our natural default is going to turn away from trusting Him and to move to unbelief. But we have a God who is faithful. He's so faithful that He said, I will spill my blood for you when you fail. He's a God who forgives. Doesn't matter how badly they sinned as a nation, when they cried out to God in their distress, He saved them. He didn't shout at them or He just saved them when they cried out in distress. So you don't know anything, but God, I've been so far from you. I've done this or, you know, there's been these areas of unbelief. It's just about you crying out, God, I repent, God, save me. And He is a faithful God. Not once did He ever disown His people. Didn't matter how bad it got because He made a deal and a covenant with them and that's what He has with us. And so with joy, we just get to turn to the Lord and again, just surrender and say, God, I worship you and only you. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to do that tonight. Just confess our unbelief to confess our sin, to confess where we worship other false gods and and turn away from you. And to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We worship you and you alone. Amen.